Alan Kring Productions, in association with the Emergent Light Studio, presents the Illinois State Collegiate Compendium, Academic Lectures in Business and Economics. This is Business Finance, FIL 240 for Autumn Semester 2023. Today, forecasting cash flow. As I said, we will have a surprise quiz on Wednesday. It will have a few different exciting components. And I do want to uh, bring up one quick couple of last points about weighted average cost of capital. The quiz will be primarily on that. Uh, and then this week is forecasting cash flows. And then we go into special topics and then it's over a few special topics and then it's over with and the dream that has been this class will end or something like that now here we go the numbers for the day and it is a rather odd day on the street not sure how to explain it but you've got a sort of a tepid market it's the, they're all positive but there was a drop and I'm not sure what spooked the markets as you can see the Dow and the S&P and uh, 500 and the Nasdaq were all up and then they went down and up and then they all dipped into negative territory for a while for about an hour or so hour and a half and then they came back up again but that's barely anything Dow was up uh, a lousy four, four hundredths of a percent. S&P 500 is n not much better at six hundredths of a percent. And the Dow, is, or rather the NASDAQ, is up 0.14%. Uh, it's just not an exciting day on the street at all. And how you, uh, what, what that means, it's kind of hard to say. But interestingly enough, crude oil had a bull surge and then it dropped back down to about 81. It's still below the trading range that it had established, 82 to 88. But the gas, price of gasoline has suddenly sh gone up at the pump, most likely because that's uh, there's the supply of gasoline is being sacrificed somewhat to get more of the distillates into the market. But it's kind of hard to say. Now, here's the interesting part. The 10-year uh, bond, the uh, yield is up, or rather, yeah, the yield is up, so the price is down. Now, that surge in the yield kind of doesn't mean great things for the economy. It's not a disaster or anything, but you've got the yields are up, which means prices are down, which means that investors are getting out of bonds. And over here... Uh, they're not putting that money into equities at all. So it looks like money is going to the sideline. Looking at the activity on the S&P 500, oh yeah, look at that. Very weak activity. Remember last week we were beginning to see numbers in the upper two billions and now we're back down there. They're not even, it's probably not going to even have half of the average daily volume. So like I said, that's money pulling off the uh, markets, the bonds, and the stocks, and just going back into cash, 
to kind of hold on and wait to see what happens next. You know, who knows? It's uh, difficult um, to say what will make the markets happy again, but it's nothing big. Um, give me a, uh, a brief moment here. I'll look at the other ones. Gold's down, so there's no, no fear of a crisis in the economy. The gold bugs are bailing out again. But oddly, well, that's interesting because the euro had appreciated. As a matter of fact, the uh, pound and the uh, the pound and the euro both appreciated, and then they just fell back down to depreciate. Well, that would probably be because those yields on the bonds, U.S. bonds, were pulling upward a little bit, making the dollar stronger. But it's really all over the place. Although the euro does seem to have gained some ground, it's up to about a dollar seven uh, right now. Hard to say though. Over here on the other side of the uh, world, the uh, here's another day when the Nikkei had a blast right off the bat, and then it just floated on that. That was a two and a third percent rise in the Nikkei, all at the opening, pretty much, and then it just floated. So something is uh, getting the investors to jump in at the beginning and then spend the rest of the day just staring at the market. Kind of hard to say, but there's London again. It has been showing so much volatility lately. If you've been watching this with me, you, that bouncing around has been just sort of like what it's been doing. Sort of like our market did. It was down, then up, then down, and sort of like what ours was doing somewhat too. Just a lot of volatility, but no direction on where it wants to go. Looking around the markets just for a few minutes here, just to see and to remind you of some of the things that we do here. Look at it, looking at bank stocks. City, Citigroup, big, huge bank, down for the day, not spectacularly, highly volatile, but it's just been in negative territory through the day, not a happy sight at all. Now, if you look at the PE ratio, undervalued, but boy, is that a risky stock. This is one of those 10 too big to fail banks, and that thing is really a risky stock. Looking quickly, just to remind you about how to do this, in case I ask it on the final exam or something like that, why what you have here is um, uh, we would take the 49, 48, this is a projected one year holding period return, divided by the current price, one year before you sell it, 42.05 minus one, and then you add that nice fat dividend yield, 4.92%. Well, let's try that again, 49.48. Try it again, $49.48 divided by 42.04 minus one, minus one, plus the dividend yield, 4.92. Oh, I forgot, that's what the problem is. Times, I forgot to times the result by 100. Oh, that's not bad, times 100. 
plus the dividend yield, 4.92%. And you get a nice, actually, that's a decent return on Citibank. It's risky. I mean, don't get me wrong about that. That's a 22.6162% holding period, total holding period return, capital gain and dividend yield. Uh, but you're taking a risk on that at that 1.55. <laughs> Although it does seem to be undervalued right now. So if you're into bank stocks, that's a bank stock that would see uh, that at least is projected to earn a darn decent return. Turning to some other industry, uh, let me think about Fastenal. I bring this up because I've had a surprising number of students have gotten jobs with this company. And I'm not sure what it, what it is about it. It's down hard today, really hard. And it's got a beta of 1.11 PE ratio. It's pretty much valued appropriately. And it's EPS, it's a profitable company. But that return looks lousy. Let me try it. 59.33 divided by, that would be the projected one-year price, divided by uh, 58.69, minus one, then multiply the result by 100, then add that dividend, 2.34%. This is a dog. 3.43% return. It's above average risk, too, so you can see that this is not not a, shall we say, a prospective investment. It's not a, it's something to get really excited about putting your money into. But going to the wild side here, just to have a look at MSFT, Microsoft. Might as well look at one of the behemoths of the earth. It's up about 0.83 per 8.84%. It's got a low beta. It's slightly overvalued, projected for one year from now at 370.22, 370.22, divided by an initial investment one year previous. Well, let's try this again. <laughs> wow. Okay, looking at it again, let's try 370.22, divided by the current price one year before the sell of 355.83 minus one, and then multiply the result times 100, and then add the dividend, which is a lousy dividend, dividend yield, 0.85. Oh, that's, that's not a great return. Of course, and again, it's below one, so lower risk, lower expected return, but 4.89% isn't spectacular, not really spectacular. One of the reasons is the dividend yield on Microsoft is really not that great. It's just a 0.85% yield, dividend yield. So what to say about that would be hard to tell. Well, it's nothing great. Let me uh, take you off this for a little bit. I'm going to pull something up here. Uh, let me go in 
just so you are aware of how to do, because on the quiz I'm going to do a weighted average cost of capital problem. So getting one of those, you want to get your whack. A weighted average cost of capital. I can find it. I couldn't find it. There it is. Download it. <coughs> and you get... That's not the one I want. That is so not the one I want. Where's the one that I want? I'm not seeing it. I might not do this because it seems to have disappeared. <coughs> How did it get there? Let me try to see if this is the one. the one that's got the pricing in it. That's not it either. I wonder where it is. Huh. It was WACC1 and I'm not seeing it anywhere in the files. Yeah, let me do that. I did do that the first time and I just wanted to see if it had migrated somehow up to the higher level. Spreadsheets. There it is. Whoa, I've got to stop. Mm. Whoa, my coffee's getting too strong for me. Let me show you this now. Um, there it is. Ah, I, I was going to say, I spent way too much time on this for that to happen. Now, all you're going to do, all you need to do is, let's say, well, I'll put in another example. Suppose that Preferred, wait, let's take one, it'll look very similar to this. Preferred, let's say it has a 3.2% dividend, par value is, take any number you want, let's say $110 a share, it's currently priced at $75 a share. Oh, $75.25 per share. And the common stock. Now, the way you notice it in the book, they gave you problems where they were telling you next year's dividend. It doesn't matter. All you have to do is put in the numbers correctly. But I will frame it so that you have the dividend that has just been paid. Let's say $2.50. It's expected to grow at, let's say, 4.5% per year. And the current price of it is, let's say, 38.45 per share. 28, no, let's do higher price. Let's do 35.51 uh, per share. Bond price, let's say the bond price is right now 105.30 on the 100. And I'll give it to you on the 100 for the bond price so that it, you, can, you won't make the mistake up here.
and then over here par value of the company's bonds is let's say 15 million dollars number of shares is $240,000. Number of shares authorized is, let's say, 30, $30 million. And I also want to put in here with six years to maturity. And I will do what I can to parallel this wording on the quiz and on the exam where you'll get this stuff. Let me see if there's anything else I've forgotten. Oops. Okay, so now with the bonds. They're priced at par value of the bonds, market values. Let me get up here. Now, the par value of the bonds. Get those done first. I said five years or six years to maturity. Coupon is 4.25%. I'll just leave that 4.25. And they are at 105.30 on the 100. My ass. Price, 105, 105.30. There. That's better. Okay. All right, six years to maturity. Yep. Okay, so we got that. Go over here and fix these up. We'll leave the tax rate at 21%. Cost of debt has been the preferred dividend is 3.2%. All right, 3.20%. Whoops, I didn't mean to do that there. 3.20%. Par value of the preferred is $110. Current price is seventy-five twenty-five per share. Number of share preferred shares outstanding is over here. Two hundred forty thousand shares. Common dividend is drawing fifty cents. Growth rate four point five percent per year. And 
And the price of the common stock right now is 25.51 per share. That should be everything. Let me make sure. Fifteen million here. That one should be. Oops, that's fifteen million. Number of preferred shares outstanding is two hundred and forty. I don't think I need that. I think I have it over there somewhere. But number of common shares is. <coughs> How many common shares do they have outstanding? Thirty million. And you don't need to worry about that new issue. That's irrelevant. Weighted average cost of capital should come out to be. 14.27%. It's about all there is to it. You just got to fill in a lot of numbers, so I will give you more time, 20 minutes on the exam, on the quiz, just because it's not calculating, it's just making sure you got all the numbers filled in. And that's how you do it. If you got that number, then you're in good shape. I know something here. I should have scooted that over. They won't show you all the numbers, but they're okay. Anyway, that's how you do this problem. You just look at the numbers, you fill in all these little tables here, and once you've filled in all the tables with the numbers that you are given, the weighted average cost of capital will come out on its own. And you can try a few yourself just to make sure that you can do it. Just tweak the numbers around and see what happens to the weighted average cost of capital. But that will be most of it. One other thing I want to help make sure that you know about. It's graphical, but I expect that you will need to know it for the quiz and or the final exam. I'm going to draw something on the board here. And I draw, drew it before, but I want to make sure that you know that it's one of those things that's actually a serious point. Let me show you something. Matter of fact, nope, I already got... Oh well, I could have shown it to you with that graph. The percent of debt in the capital structure versus the weighted average cost of capital. Now you remember the weighted average cost of capital is the weight of debt in the portfolio times the after-tax cost of debt plus 
the weight of equity times the cost of equity. Now, if I were to draw the weighted average cost of capital, if I have no debt in the portfolio, then the weight of debt, no debt, then the weight of debt would be zero times the after-tax cost of debt plus 100% times the cost of equity. If there's no debt, then it's all equity. So if there is 0% debt, then the weighted average cost of capital is the cost of equity. If the company is all debt, that would mean the weighted average cost of capital is 100% times the cost of debt plus zero times the cost of equity. Excuse me. Gasp. Oh, like that helped anything. <coughs> so if we're a 100% cost debt company, then we would have just the pure after-tax cost of debt, like somewhere here. So the weighted average cost of capital curve should look something like this. As you accumulate, use more debt and less equity, at first, debt is cheaper than equity, so you have a declining curve. But eventually you start getting so much debt that the default premium on new debt starts to hit hard and it starts to rise again. This is called the bottom. The lowest point is called the optimal capital structure. The optimal capital structure is the combination of debt and equity that minimizes the weighted average cost of capital. Make sure you understand that little graph there. There are three points of interest. I will ask something about this on the quiz and on possibly on the final exam. You just have to know what that graph, what the what the meaning of that graph is, what those 
important places on the graph are, what they're called. <sighs> Enough of that one. <coughs> okay. Now, some new material just for you new material fans out there. As my markers are dying here, give me. Let me see if I. Uh, ha! There's another one. See if that one's any better. Oh, that one's good. Okay. Now, this lecture is about forecasting cash flows. This is how we. It has so many uses in corporate finance and in corporations in general. We need to know where we are going to go from here and what each project is going to do with how we go from now to the future. And this is the basis of figuring out how we finance our new projects, how we, what decisions we make with respect to uh, issuing stock versus issuing debt and all that. Projecting Cash flows now this this thing what I'm doing here overall we have to project the full cash flows of the corporation but in the path to that we need to find out whether projects are worth our time or not as go or no go so the first thing we have to do is Project analysis. Project analysis. Well, so that's going to, we got a new project. It could be a new product. It could be a new machine. It could be a new location. A project can be a lot of things. There are two different kinds. There are expansion projects and there are replacement projects. Now I've gone through some of this before somewhat informally and here's where we hit it over the head directly. Expansion projects. You're going to bring in a new product. You're going to build a new factory. You're going to buy some more cars or trucks. It's an expansion of what you're doing now. You're going to build a new skyscraper, whatever. And with these expansion projects, well, let me go over here. Replacement. You're going to get rid of something and replace it with something else. Now, there would be some reason you do that. Most likely, if you're going to do a replacement project, it's going to be replacing one machine with another, replacing an existing fleet of trucks with a new set of trucks, something along that line, or replacing one old building with a new, another new building. But one way or the other, you are not looking at these two projects in the same way. This one is adding revenue.
incremental revenues and as a consequence incremental costs again this is something I talked about before we are sandboxing the project all what we look at is what it is what the new thing is going to do for us in terms of revenue and in terms of costs with a replacement project that is just an in change increment or decrement in costs. Generally speaking, replacement will happen only if the increment is negative. In other words, if we're saving money. A new fleet of electric vehicles is going to cost us less than the existing fleet of diesel-powered vehicles or gas-powered vehicles, something along that line. The new building is going to be more energy efficient than the old building would be, something along that line. But it's an incremental cost almost exclusively. So in other words, in this one, you would have the old cost, new cost, of let's say fuel 15,000 versus 12,000 so the increment is you are saving $3,000 but there's a there's a cost up front to doing that so that's where we start now as far as these sandboxing and all this is concerned, focusing on expansion projects right now. The first thing is the upfront cost. The upfront investment, as it were. How <coughs> much is it going to be? And then from there, the new revenues from the project. New revenue. And the new costs associated with generating that revenue. That's where we start. First things first, you look only at the new project. Don't look at it in the context of the company. However, you do have to watch out for two things. One is, on the negative side, cannibalism. If it's a new product, Is it going to take revenues from something we already have on the shelves? If it is, 
that is a subtraction from the new revenues. You, most companies try their best not to cannibalize an, old, uh, an existing product unless that project is in its decline phase. If you remember possibly from marketing or something like that, you have this introductory phase, and then you have the growth phase, and then the maturity phase, and then the decline phase. That's the introductory phase. This is the growth phase. This is the maturity phase. And this right here is the decline phase. You might, you might actually allow cannibalism. You've got a new product. And what you want to do is get that out there before you kill off an old product that's going to replace it. You might start bringing that new product in, knowing very well that it will start to impact on the revenues. Once you get into the growth phase, it's going to cause this decline to steepen. So you might see a place where cannibalism, even though companies do try to avoid cannibalism, you might see a once in a while a product uh, line do that. <coughs> uh, there's a new product in the product line, then there's an old product that is in its decline phase in the same product line, and you might, well, let's start getting this new product into the consumer's eyes now while this other product, the old one, is still on the shelves, recognizing that it will eventually kill off, the old, you'll kill off the old product. And during its early years, the new product will cannibalize some of the revenues from the old product. It happens. It's not actually not that uncommon to phase out a product uh, by, with an introduction of a new product to replace it. But cannibalism in general, you just want to be careful that you're not cannibalizing an old product. If you are, then you have to subtract the revenues that you're cannibalizing from the, uh, something else. Now, on the other hand, you can have synergies where a product actually benefits a product that's already out there. It's an add-on. Software companies do this, where they a, a product that is only for a specialized group, you will begin to offer new products which add on to the old product, and therefore make it easier for more people to use it. And that would create a synergy. Not only would you sell the new product, you would also get more people to jump in on the old product as well. It's just how it, uh, I mean, I guess you could even argue that Adobe has done that to some extent with its line of products. The more it offers add-ons, the more people embrace it. In a way, Microsoft bringing in these new add-ins for Microsoft, and they just seem to be coming out all over the place, these new add-ins, 
just make it so that more people would be willing to use Microsoft Office products. It's just the way it is. And also with Excel, you've seen the introduction of Python, which gives more people the interest in Excel because they've generally been using Python. Now they can use the two together. So you would embrace Excel because you've got your Python right in there with it. That's a new thing that's out there right now. So sometimes there can be a synergy. You don't assume it unless you have good knowledge that your, that your consumers are going to embrace this product and add, give that synergy, add that synergy to it. Those are the warnings about always sandboxing. You can have cannibalism or you can have synergies happen in them. One way or the other, though. What to watch out for? The big one is sunk costs. You've done a feasibility uh, study on a new project. Okay, well that's good. You don't add that to, you don't put that as part of your upfront investment. You've already spent money. It's, it's over. It's gone. It's not to be used in the analysis of the project itself. Whatever has already been spent is not part of the analysis. The next, oh, can't emphasize that enough. It just drives me crazy. It drove me crazy as a consultant seeing these companies that had thrown into research for a project, for a product or a project. And then they think, well, we have to keep going here because we've already spent all this money. Instead of just dumping and running, you hold on to what you've already done and your, your, your analysis is all wrong if you do that. You've already bought it, so it's done, it's gone. So after you buy a new car, you don't include the, what you paid for that car in any future analysis of the use of that car or that vehicle. It's already gone. You made the decision. Another one that is a, just a disaster. Opportunity cost. Repurposing something to use in a new project means that it becomes an upfront cost of that new project. I've brought up examples of this before and also what happens when you ignore those opportunity costs. Uh, we're going to build this new stadium, the city is, this new arena and uh, well we already have the land so we don't have to worry about that cost. Oh yes you do. If you don't then you are going to overvalue the net present value of the project because that land could have been sold for some price. So the fact that you're going to repurpose that land for this project means that it becomes a cost of the project. We don't have to worry about the director of this project because we've already got someone who knows how to do this. No, that person's salary becomes part of the cost of the new project. Well, we've got all this machinery, it's just sitting around 
and now we can use it for something. So that's not a cost to us. We're saving money by using what we already have. No, you are not saving money at all. You could have sold that machinery. That's just the reality of it. You could have gotten rid of it. And so anything that you use that you already have is still an upfront cost of the project because you're giving up the next best foregone alternative. Opportunity cost. Try that. Okay, those are the big ones to watch out for. There are a few other subtle ones along the way that are in the arena of indirect cost, but I, I should actually put that here. Overall, indirect costs, hidden costs of the new project. We ignore what we think are not really part of it. Well, we've had 18 meetings dealing with getting this uh, new project off the ground. You are spending on those projects, that project. You don't see it as that, but the opportunity cost of the time burned up worrying about this project was part of the cost. Did you have C-suite people doing this? Well, guess how their salaries, the part of their salaries that you could increment on this project, that's a cost you should look at when you start doing the analysis. Okay, enough of all that. Let me go do this now. The free cash flow. It's going to be the revenues minus the costs, and I'm going to put here operating costs, minus the depreciation and amortization times 1 minus your tax rate. Now, right now, we have 21% is what you would use because that's what the Tax Act of 2017 set for all corporations. It used to go up until it reached 39%, but now it doesn't. Okay. This piece right here is called NOPAT, the Net Operating Profit After Taxes, NOPAT. Once you have got NOPAT, you add back the depreciation and amortization. Because you didn't really spend that money. And then you subtract out your capital expenditures, which you actually spent in physical dollars to get the project started. And then you calculate the, the change in net operating working capital. 
net operating working capital is uh, the change is the net operating working capital now for the minus the net operating working capital one period back where NOWC is current assets minus current liabilities. Technically current operating assets minus current operating liabilities, but don't worry about that in my class. I'll make you suffer with that if you take another class. What's the difference between an operating current asset and a non-operating current asset and all that? Just take it as current assets minus current liabilities. This period minus the current assets minus the current liabilities in the next period. You start a project. Right now, right now you have inventory at the end of the year of $10 million. Well, once this project's starting, that first year of the project, you have to, your inventory is going to balloon to $12 million. So your change is positive $2 million, which is a hit to your free cash flow. As you build up the inventory for, this, for, the, for the new product, you'll have a hit to your free cash flow. You would also in that, well, it depends on the product, but in corporate buying, you're also probably going to have an increase in your uh, receivables. You're offering terms, get people going with your new product. So you're going to have your receivables go up from before you had this product. Uh, yeah. And also, interestingly enough, on the liability side, though, those are both hits to free cash flow. See, it's minus the change. You're using cash to build up your inventory. You are putting off revenue, cash from revenues, by allowing receivables to balloon. Now on the other side, current liabilities, those might actually go up too. Because, I mean, you'll probably owe some suppliers, you'll owe suppliers of your new products, parts, some money, so your payables will go up too. So that would be a, uh, that would be a uh, positive benefit to your, uh, to your net operating working capital free cash flow. So it can go both ways. Net operating working capital, the change can be positive if inventory and receivables go up a lot, but it could also be negative if your payables go up. You're not spending money, but you're earning revenue off it. Kind of hard to explain that one. It's better to just do it in practice than here. But anyway, these are the pieces of it. Now, salvage value. I'm putting together the pieces of this today and then putting it into a more of a comprehensive thing on Wednesday. Taxable salvage value 
is um, how do I want to put this? I don't care for the book's way of saying it. it's what you sell the old equipment for at the end of the project I don't want to use the word revenue here. Well, okay. Sale price of equipment minus the book value. of the equipment. Let me explain. At the end of a project, you sell the equipment for $80,000. Now you'd been depreciating it from its original, whatever you paid for it at the beginning, you'd been depreciating it along the way. The book value at the time of sale time of sale is only $20,000. You depreciated out 60,000 uh, you depreciated out all the all of it but $20,000. So the taxable salvage is the $80,000 you sold it for minus the $20,000 that's book value. So you face a tax of $60,000. That's a taxable amount of it. The tax would be T, the tax rate, times the taxable salvage value. So you don't get, let's say that that's 21% times $60,000. So your net salvage value is going to be equal to $80,000 minus 21% times $80,000. Because you have to pay tax on the part of that that you hadn't depreciated away. So in a case like this, if I were to do that, 
calculator, 80,000 minus 0.21 times 80,000 equals. So you get only $63,200. That would be what you would put in your cash flow analysis, is $63,200. That's what you get. It's a lot like work. Okay, got it. Now here's the thing. There are a lot of assets, fixed assets that qualify for what the book calls fast depreciation. That wasn't a term we used in the old days, but it's it, it, there are these scheduled items that you can depreciate all of it in one year or all of it in just a couple of years. So in cases like that, you know, I, I mean, in a case like that, the book value after a year or a couple of years is zero. So you're basically paying tax on the entire price you sell your, uh, of salvage. If you've depreciated away the whole thing, then whatever you get for it is taxed. And that's why rapid depreciation is very popular, of course, obviously for tax reasons. But when you dump that equipment, if it, uh, you sell it at the end of a project's life, you get hit with a tax on it because you've wiped out all the book value that would have uh, taken away some of that taxable salvage value. I didn't, it used to be, not even that many years ago, the list of items that had, that qualified for that fast depreciation wasn't that large. But anymore, it's like a lot of fixed assets, which what are normally fixed assets, are actually quite um, uh, they surprising. Uh, so yeah, you depreciate them rapidly in a year or a couple of years, but then at the end, when you go to sell off the old equipment you use the project, you're going to move on. You sell that stuff for $100,000 to some company that wants it, and you get hit on the whole $100,000. You don't have any book value left to uh, shield that, the exposure to the tax. So that can happen. It's, uh, but anyway, essentially, everything that you're going to do is going to be essentially a project. Okay. You'll have your initial investment. But you're going to have something else too because it's in that initial investment phase that you will start to have your inventory. Your inventory, 
you'll have to build that up before you start the operations. So you're going to have to appreciate that the ch there's going to be a change in net operating working capital right off the bat. Well, we pay, well, for the equipment to do this product, we paid a million dollars. And also in that first, before we launched the product, we put in, we built our inventory up, we spent $100,000 on inventory. Well, that's going to go in your initial, your first year. You may have other things happen too in that first year. So this initial investment, when you think about it being just your capital expenditures, starting out the project, no, there could be other things involved in it too. So you got to appreciate that. And then from year to year, one, two, three, and then let's say year seven, you're just going to be working on this free cash flow in year one, free cash flow in year two, free cash flow in year three, on down through to whatever remaining free cash flow you have in the last year, in this case, the seventh year. Don't forget that there will be two things happening there. You'll have your free cash flow, but you also don't forget that you will have the uh, net salvage value and you'll have an extra special. Now you may have changes in net working capital up here. Net operating working capital down here because you're going to burn off the last of the inventory, that's going to make net operating, change in net operating working capital go down. So that frees up cash. In that last year, you sell off inventory, but you don't replace it. So that's going to be a source of free cash flow in the last year of the project. The um, net salvage value is going to be a source of free cash flow in the last year. Whatever final year sales you have of the product will be free cash flow in the last year. So there will be, that last year will be kind of a, an exciting thing because numbers that remain kind of stable, maybe grew with the growth of the product or whatever, suddenly they begin to change rather quickly. Your free cash flow from revenues is dying, but you're going to get money from net salvage value and you're going to free up cash because you're letting inventory dwindle and you're not replacing it. That's all the background. And once I put some numbers on the board, I won't talk so much about this. It will just be part of the analysis. And ultimately, all we're doing, once we've gotten those free cash flows laid out, we find the net present value of the future expected free cash flows. And that's what, how we decide whether a project is a go or a no-go. That's all I have for you today. I thank you.